This week, we turn our attention to Friedrich Nietzsche. In this lecture, I outline what nihilism means, and then turn to Nietzsche's explanation of active and passive nihilism from his book The Will to Power. My overall claim is that understanding Nietzsche's account of nihilism is an essential prerequisite for understanding his more famous concepts, that is, slave morality, the repudiation of Christianity, Ubermensch, Amor Fati, embodiment, the will to power and becoming. Once we grasp what he means by nihilism, only then can we grasp the totality of his work, as well as its specific ontological and ethical commitments. If we hear the term nihilism, it may mean a range of different things, including but not limited to cynicism, declinism, moral decay, and uncertainty. In philosophy, the term nihilism can refer to the different domains of philosophy. So, for example, ethical nihilism would be premised on the idea that there are no moral facts or moral claims, or that moral claims are equivalent to subjective perspectives. Ontological nihilism would assert that reality itself does not care one jot about us, and thus the nature of reality itself is in some way indifferent to human being. This would have an analogue in political thinking or political philosophy, where we might say all political theories of society are equally valid, or in colloquial terms, they're all the same. Epistemological nihilism would equate to propositions of relativism, where truth is neither possible nor desirable. Often in philosophy, nihilism has become synonymous with existential philosophers. You know, the absurd brigade, your Sartre, your Camus, your Kierkegaard, who argue that life has no meaning. All these philosophical versions of nihilism also have cultural cachet. In Nietzsche's old times, we could think of writers like Jacobi, Dostoevsky and Turgenev. In our old time, we could think of countless films, musical movements and dramatic writing. From punk music to, to grunge to hip-hop onto grime music or in cinema, we find countless examples from The Big Lebowski to Fight Club to The Sopranos, more recently Joker, amongst many others all interrogating how one might find meaning in a meaningless world. Often, the term nihilism is thrown about like an accusation. It is something another person has, that is, those who had best indulge in cheap cynicism about the possibility of progressive change, or at worst, in the fanatical barbarism and terrorism. But what is nihilism for Nietzsche? I think the best place to understand Nietzsche on nihilism is at the end. In the posthumously published Will to Power, Nietzsche devotes much of the opening notes of this book to explaining the different phases of nihilism. There is some difficulty with these pages, not least due to the provenance of the text, but because of their incomplete nature. Also, it could fairly be claimed Nietzsche does not have a fully worked out theory of nihilism. But, on the other hand, the theme of nihilism and its overcoming is ubiquitous across his work. So it would equally be impossible to really make sense of his critique of Christianity, say, as a slave morality, if we do not understand Nietzsche's account of the inherent nihilism of Christian metaphysics. I think for our purposes here, the main thing to grasp about nihilism is that Nietzsche is making an ontological claim. That is, he is making a claim about the nature of reality. This claim, as we will see, in turn has consequences for how we understand ethics, politics, art and truth. Already, though, we find ourselves within a contradiction. What does nihilism, which is an activity of negation, or a proliferation of nothingness, have to do with reality? Which, at least minimally, must be some thing. 
Here we can see a certain Hegelian backdrop to Nietzsche. As we saw with Hegel, the positing of pure nothingness, that is, nothingness is only thinkable without any particular determination, that is, it is no thing. And we have being, on the other hand, which is the highest abstraction, as being is uniformly applied to every single thing that exists in the universe. But this too makes a claim about reality stripped of all determination. As with Hegel, for Nietzsche, both these thoughts are impossible from their inception. Being is nothingness. Nothingness is being. That which is intelligible is therefore only intelligible if we think the translation or movement of being into nothingness. Or in other words, becoming. That is quite an abstract thought. Put as simply as I can, being and nothingness are necessary for thinking about reality. Because becoming is both being and nothingness where what exists passes into and out of existence. We then need to confront becoming as central to the question of nihilism. The purest and ultimate expression of nihilism is cosmological nothingness. Reality itself is nothingness. But as we have seen, this thought is impossible without also conceiving of becoming. With nihilism, we thus have a type of abstraction. We abstract an idea of nothingness and impose or project nothingness onto the reality of becoming. This is quite a difficult thought to get our heads around, and one that Nietzsche is at pains to express. We must not mix up the positing of nihilism as a view of reality as nothingness with the thought reality itself is a form of becoming. Okay, let me try again. Nihilism is an ontological claim about reality masquerading as a claim about nothingness. In a very basic way, metaphysical nihilism claims reality is something, and that something is nothingness. This cannot be the case, as we saw with Hegel, as nothingness is always a thought of something, or a thought of both something and nothing, that is, becoming. To make things a bit more concrete, Nietzsche's problem with nihilism is that it treats becoming in an atemporal way. It treats becoming as if it were eternal and in turn subordinates becoming to a secondary and derivative status. Now, why might the eternal be equivalent to nothingness? And this is an important thought for Nietzsche. It is because in the eternal, something coming to be, something existing, something to, coming to pass, is itself impossible. Nothing happens in eternity. If something came to pass, it would imply a beginning. And if something is a start point it would be precluded from the classification eternal. Equally, if something comes to an end, such a cessation also demarcates itself from the eternal. Here, we can begin to see why Nietzsche marks such a break from the tradition of Western metaphysics. To emphasise becoming over being is to draw a clear demarcation from the philosophical tradition going back to Plato's distinction between reality and appearance or between eternal forms and ideas and the flux of appearance. Nietzsche is saying appearance is reality. However, we will need to work this thought out in much more detail over the coming lectures. For now, we can say Nietzsche is committed to articulating the idea reality is becoming. And if reality is becoming, then the god of metaphysics becomes the most nihilistic character in Christendom. Because if God is God, God must be an eternal being. And if God is eternal, therefore God is not temporal. And thus, the idea of God as eternal precludes any possibility of becoming. And this is the tricky thought. 
God is nothingness. In the famous section 125 of the Gay Science, the madman comes down to the marketplace and announces God is dead. The rhetorical force of this claim should be underlined here. We have a dramatic staging of the one and the many. The one, that is the madman, prophesizes a truth to the crowd, the many. Additionally, the words he speaks correspond directly to the Hegelian notions that I have just mentioned. And I quote, What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whether is it moving now? Whether are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as true an infinite nothing? This dense and vertiginous passage speaks of utter disorientation. The last term, an infinite nothing, really needs to be heard. After the death of God, infinite nothingness is synonymous with God. From the perspectives of humans who have not quite come to grips with this thought, they are condemned to go through the motions of existence as if God was still there. But also, after the death of God, nothing remains the same. It is important to understand that Nietzsche's death of God passage to a degree can be understood as a lamentation for what the passing of God wreaks on human existence. It is not a positive or negative claim about the existence or non-existence of God. That we might hear or see when a believer, an agnostic and an atheist argue. Something radical has occurred which ruptures our self-understanding of what it means to be human. While there are countless historical reasons for the death of God, the Enlightenment, Newtonian theories of force, the passing of the divine right of kings, Galileo, the evolutionary disintering of the human as the centre of the universe. Nietzsche is more interested in the consequences of the death of God for our sense of self-understanding. And it is a radically different world we live in, one where we no longer have the solace of a sense of our proper place in the great chain of being. We can no longer have a sense that our mind and body are separable, which might offer us the possibility of a mortal life. We no longer understand our community as the chosen one. Not an easy pill to swallow. Ultimately, the death of God is not really about God at all. At this point in history, we have lost a sense of who and what we are. The world has been turned upside down, and with the death of God we lose everything. But we don't go down without a fight. I don't really think we can equate Nietzsche with atheism in the contemporary sense. Contemporary atheism, as say, expounded by new atheists such as Richard Dawkins et al. These appeal to science that is, science as the arbiter of belief. For Nietzsche, an authentic atheism would have to bring about atheism in a practical sense, after going through the passage of the death of God. Real atheism, true atheism, would have to be lived. If anything, Nietzsche is closer to Hegel's radical humanism. We should also be careful with the term lamentation. A lament suggests a nostalgia for a lost time or the mourning of a lost object. Make no mistake, God is dead. This happened and God is not coming back. Nietzsche's philosophy then is about confronting this truth. The trouble with nihilism though is that we just really don't want it to be true so we end up substituting innumerable God substitutes or idols for the absence at the core of our reality. We remain in hock to the religious ideal and the possibility of eternal life despite ourselves. 
The deeper point which Nietzsche is making about the death of God is about the nihilism that ensues in the aftermath of such an existential trauma. After the trauma, we continue to maintain our lives as if God existed, even despite, on some level, knowing that it cannot be realised. This leads to hugely pernicious effects on our psychic, cultural and political well-being, as we scramble for alternative idols to replace the existential vacuity at the core of our being. The ontological nihilism we have been talking about then morphs into more concrete forms. And here we can see where Nietzsche conforms to a more conventional understanding of nihilism, where nihilism is evident in crises of meaning, purpose and value, as precipitated by the death of God. Nihilism, as it becomes worked out in the psychological, ethical and cultural sphere, becomes manifest in forms of devotion. But devotion to what? Devotion to a static understanding of the human being. Put as basically as I can, what we do is ape the yearning for the eternal in the human world. This can manifest itself in any number of ways. It could emerge in a philosophical sense where we assert a self which has a static and core essence immune to change and transformation. It could just be that we rigidly are stuck to an interpretation of ourselves or it could be through political fanaticism where we devote ourselves to a particular political ideology over and above all others. Or it could be just a partner we love who has moved on. The death of God has multiple deleterious consequences for humans' metaphysical well-being. Indeed, this is why Nietzsche very much considers himself as a physician of culture. He is diagnosing our philosophical, epistemological, ethical and political ailments. This is a crucial activity, since if we do not understand why we are ill, then we cannot hope to figure out how to transfigure our self-understanding to live healthier and more fulfilling lives. This is particularly so when Nietzsche discusses what he calls passive nihilism. Passive nihilism really describes a type of psychological resentment. When we are confronted with the thought that reality is not eternal, that there is no ground beneath our feet, it in turn engenders psychic meaninglessness. The worst iterations of which can be self-harm, misrecognition, self-denial, cynicism, and worst of all, cruelty. We can see here an echo of Plato's separation of reality and appearance. We separate ourselves from the world itself as it occurs. We are here as its subjects, and the world is over there as objects. The negative consequence of this is that we understand ourselves as passive recipients of the external world, and thus what nihilism does is turn us into creatures utterly focused on our own self-regarding conscience, or perhaps better, as creatures of pure consciousness. Something akin to Hegel's idea of the unhappy consciousness. Here the self does not understand itself as an ecstatic being, that is, as a being that is alive and living in the world over the course of a life, but quite the contrast, as a being slavishly devoted to their own introspection. As such, Nihilism means we become selfish, cruel, introspective. Contrary to the common characterization of Nietzsche as the champion of hyper-individualism, the more we become selves, the more we think we have an essence. The more we think we have an essence, the more hyper-focused we are on our own subjectivity as the only arbiter of what is good and true. The more we become self-destructive, malicious and careless, the more we try to reassert that inner self. In short, nihilism makes the self something passively determined by its concrete history, rather than taking an active part in forming how history unfolds in any meaningful way. 
active nihilism, on the other hand, is characterized by a constructive and creative response to the exhaustion of meaning. Active nihilism is active precisely because it acknowledges the truth of the impossibility of eternal reconciliation. Elsewhere, what Nietzsche calls amor fati, names our acceptance of the futility of eternal ideals and their proxies in the human world. If we do not accept the fate of our historical positioning, then we can easily find ourselves steering our thoughts and commitments into new false gods and idols in a desperate bid to find a ground for our existence. Or, as Nietzsche puts it, in his own words, we wallow in some supreme form of domination and administration. Active nihilism, then, is really about overcoming nihilism. It requires a negation of the negation, to use Hegel's words again. By this I mean that we negate nihilism through creative acts and commitments. Active nihilism requires a joyful acceptance of becoming. We are not eternal beings, we are temporal and historical beings in a world without goals, purpose or any grand explanatory story to tell us what we are for all time. Thus, active nihilism requires a joyful wisdom, a joyful acceptance of becoming. All that is, is the actual concrete events of history as it unfolds. Again, this is neither a mechanistic and scientific account of the human being, nor a supernatural one. Belief in eternal life is thus a a defective form of self-understanding, one that simply fails to acknowledge the reality of becoming as the only reality. In a more local sense, the nihilism which the death of God unleashes tempts us with false prophet and idols which anesthetize our ability to discern our own possibilities. Thus Nietzsche is showing the historicality of the human, that is, the human is a temporal being which exists as concurrently past, present and future. A world without future is a world without possibility, and a world without possibility ultimately expresses the most soul-crushing form of nihilism, that everything remains as it is. All of Nietzsche's philosophy then attempts to assert that humans are temporal beings not confined to the given. What we are is in fact beings that are not what we are. Clearly, the human is the being constituted as unfinished or incomplete in Nietzsche's eyes. What Nietzsche will come to call his transvaluation of all values requires reframing static thinking. As such, the transvaluation of the values is occasioned as a therapy for practices of self-denial, resentment, which occurs due to the loss of idols and ideals. What Nietzsche will come to call amor fati, eternal recurrence, the ubermensch, affirmation, embodiment, are Nietzsche's putative antidotes to the ways of self-narcotization. The ways of self-narcotization denotes the dispositions of passive nihilism. We should be careful about the term therapy, however. When Nietzsche says therapy, we should not just hear it in the usual sense, as in I go through a therapy which will make me better, or that I will be fixed. Being fixed in place to an identity, to a type of self-understanding, to a form of political allegiance, or to an ill-advised partner or unhealthy ways of configuring oneself. In contrast, Nietzsche wants us to understand humans as unfixed, perhaps inherently broken, but also beings who can overcome their inherent fragmentation by viewing themselves as beings which are not stuck in the present, in the now, and instead understand us as healthy, vital, and spiritually enriched. 
Throughout his work, Nietzsche names a variety of dispositions and practices which could be understood under the auspices of passive nihilism. The thing with passivity is that it is easy, seductive even in some instances, and the hardest thing to understand about it is that we in fact enjoy passivity. It is nice to be determined rather than determining. Other instances of passive nihilism could include cruelty, obsessions, rote living, pettiness, resentment of the prosperous, religious escapism or tribal fanaticism. Affirming such dispositions implies we can only determine ourselves in an impoverished and constrained way. We allow ourselves to be determined passively in line with a diminished range of possibilities, a simulation of spiritually enriched life, as it were. On the other hand, active nihilism requires that we self-understand ourselves more sincerely, more historically, as temporal beings, understanding that we are unfinished and that we can exist with possibilities in view that may or may not be actualised. In short, that things can always be otherwise, even stronger, that things are otherwise than how we experience them. Therefore, one may affirm that us humans are the beings that can become, but also the beings that are susceptible to being seduced by the deadening decline of static idols. Active nihilism requires understanding the human as an aristocratic being. And by aristocratic, I don't mean attending Eton, getting an internship in the City of London and moving six years later to get a job in the Cabinet. By aristocratic, Nietzsche means best, as in noblest, most virtuous, most courageous. These are virtues and should be understood really in the same way Aristotle does, as habits. But habits are another word for dispositions or inclinations. We can also hear habits as both capacities or abilities, or as forms of power. Thus, Nietzsche, like Hegel, understands the human being as activity. We are what we do. Active nihilism requires the cultivation of virtues as dispositional power. Here one needs to comprehend oneself as a form of power, tendency, or ability to do, or power. We are the beings who are abilities, and we can further and enhance these, or we can deaden them. We can face them down as capacities, either in an aesthetic, creative sense, or an anaesthetic, self-narcotization sense. Put simply, one is characterised by activity rather than passivity, and this becomes a sign of strength for Nietzsche, with active nihilism necessitating the overcoming of existing conventions, whether legal, political or social, since, as he says himself, all previous goals become incommensurate. The primary virtue Nietzsche extols in this context is that of courage, or the courage to be, to remain steadfast, to maintain oneself. That is, the courage to engage in riskful living. Rejecting existing values, however, can be dangerous, filled with threat, both peril and possibility, as well as temptation by the dominant idols of the day. It should be noted, however, active nihilism is not an in-stage one can reach. Rather, it is a transitional stage, where one accepts the truth of a godless universe, whilst judging, discerning, living with and against the traditions which conventional idols will inevitably throw our way. Nietzsche demands to proceed truthfully alongside one's historical faith, to be engaged and understand our commitments as forms of power. Life is thus hard, 
While this insight is hardly worthy of a newsflash, we should, for Nietzsche, admit that our commitments are always at stake and not settled. This is crucial from the perspective of spiritual enrichment and life enhancement. As one can always do good as well as evil, beyond good and evil. In conclusion, the question of nihilism is central to considering how we respond to the world as wealth of power. To understand Nietzsche at all, we need to understand what he means by nihilism. Nihilism is first a repudiation of ontology. At least ontology as Nietzsche conceives it. That is as becoming. That is being is becoming. This repudiation seeps into our psychological, cultural, ethical and political life with pernicious consequences for our self-understanding. To affirm nihilism is to affirm eternalism or an ideal of an eternal life as opposed to this life, this world. Thus, at least nominally, Nietzsche offers an imminent theory. That is, he explains things in natural rather than in supernatural terms. But this is only half the story. Nietzsche's imminence is also a type of transcendence. Life itself is not separable from, but neither is it reducible to nature. In contrast, life is continually overcoming itself, transcending itself, albeit not in a transcendent way. Thus, we can make the claim that Nietzsche offers a type of radical materialism. One necessary to philosophically challenge any separation of ontology, ethics and epistemology. We will turn to this point in the next lecture in more detail, but what is crucial to understand is that Nietzsche tries to articulate the conditions of thinking. He is asking, in a way made possible by Kant, although not reducible to Kant, what does it mean to be alive? And what it means to be alive is to be a being that is constituted as power. We are only thinkable in a dispositional sense. Nietzsche, therefore, offers a radical materialism. Philosophical materialism rests on the proposition that reality is reducible to and composed by basic units of matter. For Nietzsche, such an atomic conception of matter overlooks the question of how life emerges from 